Hi, I'm Jess Binniff. And I'm Kate Montague. And you're listening to the Audiocraft Podcast, a series of recordings from our 2017 conference. This session is about those life-changing and life-challenging stories. Our panellists have all worked on some really sensitive topics. And in this session, they talk openly about dealing with trauma and share some of the personal decision-making that also goes into this kind of reporting. This was one of our most popular sessions on the day, and it's a really important conversation. But just a heads up, there is a trigger warning on this one. Our panellists talk about racism, refugee detainment and child sex abuse. We're going to let radio legend Sherry Delise, who is a member of our programming committee, introduce the session and panellists. It's called Handle with Care, which I think is a really beautiful name for a session that I'm really looking forward to. Um, Because when we take up this work, we create ourselves as caretakers of people's stories. And that's really no small matter. I was just at the session that um, Jesse and Belinda presented, and this theme of care and how you handle people's stories uh, just wove itself in and out. It's an inevitable thing that we're constantly colliding up against and and a very fine balancing act. But first, we're working with people's stories, and I really believe that Stories we tell ourselves about ourselves are how we construct our identity and that that can be a very fragile area. So then we do that and we take them and then we take up the role of representing them with all the potential impacts that that can have. So it's really big stuff. So that is why we've assembled this fabulous group, really well-seasoned producers, documentary makers, journalists, all of whom have really chosen to work right in the thick of this, right in this area of complexity and fragility and to do it with really great integrity. I'm going to tell you something about them, but it won't begin to do justice to all of the breadth of the work that they've done. But our moderator today is Eurydice Aroni. She's a senior lecturer in journalism at the University of Technology, Sydney, where we are, and she's an award-winning audio producer. And since the 90s, Yuri's been recording people, places and events from Sydney's sex work scene. And in 2015, she produced a one-hour-long and absolutely epic documentary about the 1975 French sex workers' strike. We've also got Daniel Browning at the end. Daniel is a documentary maker, a journalist, a radio broadcaster, and he presents and produces RNs Away, an absolute national treasure of a long-standing program on ABC. He's a descendant of the Bundjalung and the Cullerley people of far northern New South Wales and southwestern Queensland. His career has included stints as the news director of Triple J and arts reporter for ABC Radio News, and he's also a widely published freelance arts writer. Michael Green is a producer of The Messenger. You probably know that's a a really groundbreaking podcast about Abdulaziz Muhammad and his life inside the Australian-run immigration detention centre on Manus Island. As a print journalist, Michael's written for The Age, for The Herald, for Nature and Nautilus and others, and as coordinator of Behind the Wire, he's produced a book and a museum exhibition of people's stories from detention called They Cannot Take the Sky. And finally... Kirsty Melville is an award-winning radio documentary producer and the presenter of Earshot on Radio National, ABC RN. Her work has been recognized by New York festivals, the UN Media Peace Awards, the Amnesty International Awards, and the Human Rights Awards. And Kirsty says she's addicted to understanding the complexities of human relationships and finding the best way of sharing those stories. And I would add that her work is really often at this incredibly powerful and highly sensitive end of working with people's stories and representing them with integrity. Thanks. Welcome, and what a great day it's been, a celebration of the delights of uh, audio storytelling, I think, and uh, thank God I live to see this. Uh, But it's time now to talk about the difficult stuff. Uh, Trigger warning, we're going to be hearing people talk about child sexual abuse, uh, racism and we're also going to be hearing from inside a detention centre on Manus Island. Now reporting on stories uh, like these often involves risk and tremendous commitment 
uh, not only from the journalists, but from the people whose lives and emotions we lay bare throughout telling. Often these stories reveal important truths and sometimes they hold the powerful to account, but are there also ethical conundrums in these tales? Do we further endanger those involved? Are we, in some sense, cannibalising their misery and misfortune in the pursuit of justice, entertainment and, yes, sometimes even awards? I can ask these questions because I am complicit in making stories just like those I've described. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure we're much more interested in hearing from our guests today, fabulous panel of journalists, brave enough to tackle these types of questions, I hope. <laughs> uh, so we're going to be hearing a little of their work, of each of uh, their work, and uh, talk about that work and the wider questions involved around it. So first of all, we're going to hear a little bit of uh, The Messenger. And Michael, would you mind explaining to those who haven't heard it what it's, briefly what it's about and what we're going to hear? Sure. Thanks, Yuri. Um, so The Messenger is um, a podcast about Aziz, who's been in detention on Manus Island for four years. Um, and it came about because I was working on a project, um, a bigger project about immigration detention an oral history project, and I'd been working on it for uh, about two and a half years, and then I got put in touch with Aziz. And I first got in touch with him to make a, a story for the book, and we were trying to figure out how we could speak, and he had his, this smuggled phone, and we couldn't have a phone call, and so I was thinking about whether or not I'd have to make a written story entirely by text messages from him, or how, and then we came across the, the we could send WhatsApp voice messages to each other. And really, after the kind of the first night that we spoke, I was just so moved by the conversation we had um, and the sound of his voice and really the character of it um, that um, soon after that we started talking about, well, would we make a, a radio show together? Um, and and so that was in sort of late, fair, early March last year, and we've been speaking probably most days since then, so there's an enormous amount of correspondence between us, um, and there's been a huge amount of work um, put in by lots of people also who are in this room. Um, there's John Cheer and Hannah Reish and Beck Fari who are here as well, um, and a, it's a collaboration between Behind the Wire and the Wheeler Centre. It's a 10-part uh, podcast series, and there's seven great episodes out now, and the next one's going to knock your socks off. Um, uh, so maybe I'll start yeah. playing it. So this clip is a clip from, um, I think it's the fourth episode, um, and Aziz is talking about um, what he witnessed during um, a riot um, in, on Manus Island in early 2014. The first thing what they did, they shoot inside the canteen, inside Mount Compound. They shoot one bullet inside the canteen, and then the second bullet went straight away to the room. It was, it's like a container, it went through the container and bang, you know, the bullet got one of the detainees on his right legs. And then the rest of the bullets were just on the airs, around the 30 bullets, like bang, 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 from all the sides. Some police, they were shooting from the side of the, uh, of the ocean, some of them, they were shooting from behind Mike, and then some of them, they were shooting in this side. And it was totally chaos. So when we heard that shooting, the, uh, the expert told us that to lay down on the ground. They say, they're shouting louder, everybody lay on the ground, everybody lay on the ground. These guys are not controlling themselves, they can kill you, lay on the ground. We and the staff and everyone, even the G4s, we just lay on the ground. And, you know, until those guys, they stop shooting. This was the night of the 17th of February. A report by G4S said that about 300 of the nearly 1,400 detainees were involved in the protest. Late in the night, the guards were evacuated and the PNG Mobile Police Squad entered the detention centre, along with a number of local men and a few expat Australian staff members. And that's when the situation got out of control. Because there is a shortage of staff at that time, and then they were trying to flew in some staff from Australia, but they couldn't do it, so... The locals, again, the police were trying to stop them, but the police couldn't stop the locals. And then the locals from the bush, they came and jumped inside my compound with their bush knife and with their sticks and stuff. So they start beating the shit out of 
everyone in the center in my compound. They start with, from my compound and then they want to come to Foxwood. From Foxwood, they want to go to Oscar compound. The guard cannot able to control them while the police even didn't able to control them. How the guard will control them? And then, you know, when they beat a lot of guys in uh, in my compound, they're beating them one by one inside their rooms. Like, they don't care what nationality you are from, but they beat them seriously. And that was one of the rough things, tough and rough things that I never saw in my life, actually. I don't know how many of you have heard this series, but it's in it's. It's an incredibly important series because journalists uh, are not allowed into Manus, into the mm -hmm. detention centre on Manus Island. Mm -hmm. So Aziz is really operating in there as an eyewitness account. He's giving us an eyewitness account. How do you see him, Michael? What do you see his role as? Because he is really, for me, taking on the role of an eyewitness reporter in a conventional sense. In that grab, at least. Yeah, it probably varies at, at times, but um, we talk about him as a, a reporter. The other people that we I mentioned before, uh, as producers of the show, and as is as a reporter. But he's also an activist, yeah. Yeah, he is. Yeah, and so we um, the the show sort of it's it's um, it runs chronologically, but also thematically, um, and in one of the in one episode in particular talks about his activism. Um, and it's it's been throughout his his three year th four, nearly four years. There's been many many ways in which he's he's resisted his detention. That's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it it is really interesting. I um, mean, it, traditionally we wouldn't have accepted a few years ago a report like that as a a, a news item, but we've had to do that in this case because he is the only one there. Yeah, I mean there are there are some other people um, in detention who are who are also reporting, um, and there are ways. So for for me and for our team, as as we assess what Aziz has said, there are ways that we can check it. So I think in that clip, uh, how did you check it? In that clip, we um, I said that I had read. There's a report from G4S, which is the security company. There's a report from um, that the government did, the Cornell report. It's an independent one, commissioned by the government. And we also check uh, our scripts with Ben Doherty, who's a, the Guardian's correspondent. Um, I'm in touch with several other men in detention as well, and so I can kind of cross-check what Aziz says. Um, in that sense, though, like I think that speaking to someone who's an eyewitness to, a, to any sort of incident is a, is a not standard journalistic practice. Um, it just happens that it's particularly different, difficult to get in touch um, with people inside detention. Mm. But in this case, you're not asking him questions. He's just giving you what he thinks is the most important parts of the story all through the series. Yeah, I mean, partly that's because of the way it unfolded. And so at that time... Um, Aziz was, it was Ramadan last year, I think, and he was sleeping during the day and he was up all night and he would just send streams of messages, like 100 messages. Um, and, and so then I, like I'd look at my phone and then I'd just spend the next three hours listening to this um, testimony and, and find out what he said and then try to respond to parts of it as I could. Or, I mean, you know, we would have discussions about things that I wanted to talk about or I would ask questions and then I'd say okay what about this thing um, but then at that time in, in particular then he would just run with with what he wanted to talk about. So much of what we do with podcasting takes place over these extended times and it's an extended deep engagement with people. What do you think that does to the journalist source relationship? When I, as I said before when I first got in touch with him I, it was on the basis that we would be working together on a on a story and um, uh, we at Behind the Wire, we'd spent um, about a year figuring out how we were going to do that and what the risks might be um, in, for people in all kinds of different categories um, and how we would work with people to put them in control of the, the way they told their story. And, and we'd done a, a body of work already. And he, I'd been put in touch with him through someone that he knew and who knew what we'd done. And so he came and he... When we spoke, he went and did his research about me, right. um, and he knew what he was getting into. And then we we spoke 
constantly about what it was and how it was going to happen and constantly kind of checking in back and forth. But our relationship has always been about making um, a, a story. Was, yeah. But how can you protect him in that situation? He's already so vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and so it's really about thinking carefully through what those different risks are. Um, and strangely, um, when, when I started this project about immigration detention, I didn't actually think that we would be speaking to people in offshore because I just thought that they would be too vulnerable. Um, but, but in a strange sort of twist, it actually became that a lot of those people are the ones that we're most willing to talk about and actually had least to lose because they're already in a situation where they, they're trapped. And um, as is right from the first time we spoke, was very um, keen on on speaking out. He had done it before, so I knew that he had spoke. He was familiar with speaking to journalists, and we just talked about all the different risks. Like, was there a risk in him? He had refugee status, so um, there's a risk for people who don't have refugee status if they say something to a journalist and it's published and it's inconsistent with what they might have might say to authorities. Then that can they can be judged to be um, in like unreliable witnesses to their own case, and that could affect their their refugee claim. Um, but as he's already had refugee status, yeah, there's a balance as well between respecting his, like thinking about risks and raising risks that I see, um, but also respecting his agency. So he hasn't been targeted by guards because of the broadcaster, because these are available. For no, the not because of the not because of the podcast. But I mean, he's he talks a lot about being yeah. <laughs> targeted by guards um, generally. Uh, but, yeah. And you went, can I, can I tell people that, will you go and see him yeah, eventually? So, yeah, yeah. So at the end of, uh, we've got seven episodes out now, and at the end of episode seven I get on a plane to go to Manus Island. Mm. Um, and Does he see you as his friend now because you've been there and you've, you know, taken such trouble to care for him and about him? Yeah, we talk about each other as friends. Uh-huh. Yeah, And I look, I, I feel... Like one thing I really, like I get incredibly moved by the show and like I I feel um, so like deeply concerned with him and, and my friendship with him, like it's very affecting and it, you know, every day there's news about Manus and it's just a, it's a horror show and I, the, our communication, it's, it's, it's a big part of my life and it affects, you know, <laughs> affects me at all hours. I'll be doing going about my normal life you know <laughs> watching the nba finals with my friends <laughs> or something and then i get messages from aziz you know about whatever's going on in his life and um yeah it, it's a very personal thing yeah i can see that mm. yeah now this is produced by yourself obviously the wheeler center behind the wire so it's a team effort but it's not they're not conventional broadcasters we heard in an earlier session how when you're working in a big conventional media broadcaster, you can draw on resources like legal advice, um, other more experienced broadcasters, people to put a fresh ear over your material. Um, so I'm wondering for this sort of audience how different it is to work outside that, whether you think you'd be doing things differently if you were inside that. Can you talk about those sorts of differences? Well, maybe some of the ABC people might tell me whether <laughs> they might have uh, been allowed to do it, or it might have been not have been commissioned by ABC, perhaps. Um, I think so. <laughs> I think it would have been. It would have been. I think so. Mm. Yeah, so uh, uh, we... I mean, we have, partly through this longer process that we um, went through with our bigger project we have some of that infrastructure although it's volunteer based but we we do have lawyers and we thought we've got legal advice about what those kinds of risks might be i have worked uh with um trauma counselors to develop guidelines for um for for me and for all the people involved with the project about dealing with trauma and re-traumatization um and like i said earlier we got uh, we've got had ben doherty Mm. reading over our scripts for fact-checking. Mm. So we've tried to get around that as mm. much as possible. Mm. Um, and the Wheeler Centre's done a, a really great job. Mm. And so we have had that... Uh, mm. f- to my mind, we have had that institutional benefit. Mm. And that was why, f- for for me and for the rest of the Behind the Wire team, that we wanted to work with them. Great. 
Okay, so thank you for that, Michael. Daniel, I'd like to come to you on that point. Mm -hmm. um, you work for the ABC. Is, is that right? Do other program makers at the ABC consult with you, for instance, about how to approach doing stories with First Nations people? Uh, it's fairly regular occurrence, actually. <laughs> um, and what do you tell... What general advice do you give to them? <laughs> I mean, I used to have a list of, like, the most unreasonable requests that have been made of me. <laughs> um, I was once asked for expert advice on how to treat a story about a botched uh, initiation in a remote community in the Northern Territory. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just... Look, yeah, I mean, I do, I do get asked, and some of the requests are reasonable and some are not. Um, but yeah, I'm not the oracle, I'm not the black fella, mm. I'm not the only black fella mm. working in the ABC by any means. But, you know, I do, I do respect being asked, mm. um, and I do treat that, that request with respect. Are there general, though, considerations that people need, like a beginning... <laughs> You know, <laughs> like where do they start? Yeah, again, because I have lots of students, you yeah, know, yeah. wanting to do stories within with yeah. First Nations, and uh, look, I think there are just really some very basic principles you need to apply when you're working with um, traumatized people. Um, and let's face the fact that every Aboriginal community, perhaps um, broadly speaking, most Aboriginal people have a history of trauma have been exposed to some kind of historical or intergenerational trauma. Um, and if you work from that thesis, um, apply, you know, that kind of duty of care to handling, handling them and their story with just a little, a light touch. Um, you know, there used to be a time when in the ABC, uh, you know, if you gave Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people all their issues a little more weight, or you treated them with more gravity, that you were considered not to be doing your job as a journalist, that you were putting them into a special category, uh, and that their stories are no more important than anyone else's. Well, I don't think that's true. Um, I think that the stories that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people tell, um, and will tell in the future, are probably some of the most important stories uh, that will be told by you, um, that can be told. Um, and what we're seeing now, I think, in, in terms of um, Australian history, uh, is a slow unfolding and a corrective um, to, you know, how do I say, to all the media um, misrepresentation uh, that has plagued Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, since, um, since the boats. Okay, well, let's, let's listen to a piece um, of yours. Can I just set this up, though? Yes, because, please do. Yeah, I mean, I guess I chose this audio because it's, it's, it's recorded in a community in southeastern Queensland, and I guess when I went there, I, even though I had family relationships with this particular community, um, they were, had been severed by... My grandfather was not born in this community, but his father and his grandparents were from there. So he was removed, stolen uh, from his family, never grew up knowing this side of his family. So I rock up there, I'm like, oh, hey, I'm Arthur's grandson. Tell me the story of this community. And um, it was challenging in very, very many ways. My grandfather steadfastly refused to ever be referred to as a member of the Stolen Generations. Uh, up to his dying day, he was five foot nothing and grey-haired and he, he, you never saw him out of his cricket whites. He was, he was that kind of black fella. So it was just part of something, it was something that happened in his life uh, and something that he had moved on from. So going back to this community had that layer with it as well. Um, but yeah, I, I had encountered some... Uh, the, the community was very t uh, taciturn about, you know, the kind of story I wanted to tell. And I already had my story in mind, and, you know, that's a stupid approach. <laughs> um, but I had my story in mind, and so we'd we were wandering around for a couple of days. It was me and Matthew Leonard, actually. It was the only time I've ever had anyone working with me as a, as a, as a producer on location. It was a rare luxury, but this is what 
happened when we found someone who was willing to talk on about day three or four. We were about to, we were probably one or two days away from leaving. So this is what happened. Okay. We're just walking down into a gully. Can you tell me something about the significance of this particular site? This particular site here now, this is where, in the old days, it was known as a birthing place where a lot of people, a lot of women gave birth, and it was a lot of brigalow and wattle was in this area. And uh, got stories, you know, from the old guys, the old men, they always respected this place, and even older women in the community at the time, because I was lucky enough to come up in an era where a lot of the older women were really good role models, and... I spent a lot of time with them and a lot of them were involved in the church and stuff like that and they told us a lot of stories about this place and this was one of the areas that was really significant to them because they say this was a birthing place here. Your grandfather, was he born here? My dad was born here and his brothers, my dad is the youngest of the family and his brother Percy, they were born in this exact spot here, yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> it sounds <laughs> really I, harmless yeah, but actually, I, yeah. actually it's not. Yeah. Um, people, people would think... That's okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the reason I'm playing it is because I want the audience to know that even things that we think are insignificant or minor are not seen that way um, by the communities um, from which we report. I mean, I'm a, I'm a journalist more than anything else. That's my background. So, you know, this idea about offence and harm and, you know, all those kind of the nuances and the subtleties of how you approach talent and stories. I mean, I was, I was literally one of, those, one of those journalists that picks up the phone, you know, calls Bob Carr, you know, Bob Carr gives 30-second grab, <laughs> hang up the phone, write the story, bang. That kind of radio news journalist. So, you know, going to Radio National, you know, and making thoughtful, uh, engaging programs about real people, that was, a, that, that was a challenge. But this was one of the first programs we made and, yeah, I mean, it seems innocuous, but for a man to be talking about a birthing site, I mean, that's... I mean, the alarm bells should have been going off for me. Mm. But my issue was that he was the most talkative. He just had the most to say. And he took us around the community and he said, oh, this used to be an emu farm over here and this is the cemetery and, you know, and this is the birthing place. Mm. I mean, he, he does felt, pause. He, does, he pauses. He knows he's done something wrong. I didn't ask for it, though. I mean, he, these are the things he wanted to show me. What happened in the end, when, when the story was broadcast, there was serious concern raised by women from the community. And, you know, there is a seniority in communities. People who, you know, in a kind of typical Australian narrative, people who have no culture. Um, but these people do have a culture, they have a hierarchy, they have people who can speak on behalf of that community, and he just happened to be a person on this occasion should not have been speaking about such delicate and, uh, you know, cultural matters as where a woman might give birth, even though, as he said, his father and his uncle were born in that gully. I mean, it's hard to avoid, it's right there. So, at the time, I had no problem with it. It's only when it came back to it and then the, 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 the feelings ran so high about that audio that I had to place it. It's embargoed forever. I mean, I can't even believe, believe I chose to play it today. But for the, for, for the purposes of instruction, I mean, I, would, I think this is a really good example. I've used it often. What you think is okay and the kind of... the insignificant, the minor detail... Well, they kind of actually mean a lot. When you say, we know now it wasn't okay, mm. but what, what is the actual impact on the ground? What sort of trauma would that cause within the community? What sort of problems would it cause? Well, I mean, every community has politics and politics in Aboriginal communities is very complex and without kind of generalising, um, because every community has politics, every single community in the country has its own politics. But these are you know, in, in some ways very, um, they're almost hermetically sealed, you know, like they ha the, the politics are so tight, uh, you really need to be talking to the right people and, you know, yeah, ask one person, should I be talking to this person? They'll say, don't talk to that person, talk to this person. Well, there's no harm in talking, and I've said this before, there's no harm in talking to as many people as possible and then kind of working out from there what, who is the person yeah. What kind of truth am I getting? Because, I mean, there's this, this is truth-seeking, really. Yeah, and I mean, he, he just happened to be the wrong person on that, on that occasion. Okay. And, and regarding, I think you, you really need to be sensitive about 
um, how the community reacts. Because like um, Gina was saying in the, in the, the session about um, my grandmother's lingo, this is their, this is how they are, this is their narrative. This becomes part of how they are seen by other members of their community. So it is important. Mm. And for a community that's been so fractured and misrepresented, there is a greater responsibility. Yeah. Okay, let's play the, the next of your grabs, if that's so. Do you want to set this up a little bit? Um, 25 years ago, the federal government, um, a, t a report was tabled in the federal parliament um, into the Stolen Generations. So for the 25 years, I was lucky enough to have two men who'd survived a notorious boys' home on the far north coast of New South, on mid-north coast of New South Wales, a, boy, a boys' home called Kinchula. Kinchula is, yeah, it's like a, a horror show, like Manus, really. Um, and this is all what we have from people who survived this hellhole. And um, this is a man who is now in his 60s, no, Early, yeah, late 50s, so not that much older than me. So, yeah, I, I think he'll, he'll tell the story. Can you think of one particular moment when you really thought, this place is truly, I'm in hell here? Getting raped by the manager. That was an ongoing thing, you know, like every week. When he's drunk, you could smell him coming in, you know. And, you know, not only myself, other, other boys used to get it too, so, you know, you used to come in just on certain nights, just on a, on a certain um, evening, you know, and he'd take someone else, you know, and you're, 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 you're very thankful that someone else, you know, you don't, just don't want to think about that way, you know, but you're not, not getting it towards yourself, you know, and, and listen to someone else crying, in the, you know, in the distance, you know, just up around the corner, you know, you can hear them crying and things like that, so... You know what was going on. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, what I was—I think the reason I chose that is because not, I'm not—I don't want to capitalise on on anyone's suffering. And I think there's a real there's a choice in journalism to include and not in, and to you know to decide what to leave out. And there's a lot of stuff that in this interview, in the end, that I could have left out. But they actually wanted the story to be told, and they were in such they were in such a they were in the right place in their lives to, and there were, there are two survivors of the boys' home. Each of them had a number and they recited the number when they came in. I was number 35, I was number 10. And everything, I mean, I, I already knew the history of Kinchula, but I, I really felt that it was time for people to kind of be reminded uh, of what happened there. And their generosity and kindness. I mean, often at the end of an interview, I hug people, I mean, people, that's the, I have a relationship with these people. Aboriginal people are meant to be, Aboriginal journalists are meant to be Aboriginal as well. Mm. So aside from what the, being entirely professional, there is another side to it, that you build a relationship even in a short period of time mm. and that you respect, the, you respect each other. And that you, the points of commonality, you talk about, he, well, I'm, I was talking to Richard and he was like, oh, you're Bunjalung, I'm Bunjalung, and then we'll talk, we'll talk about a tree. The, the essence of that story is a tree in the grounds of the former boys' home which has a chain around it. And around this tree, boys were lashed overnight for just wetting the bed and, you know, shit like that. And, uh, you know, some of them suffered sexual assaults, uh, you know, on that tr at that tree when they were lashed to that tree. So it was about kind of, you know, redemption, really. I mean, the story is a lot more positive than that. And a lot of stuff came out that just couldn't, couldn't be in there because I felt that there was such a sense of... They felt safe, but broadcasting isn't safe. Yes. And knowing when you have got too much... Yeah. It's a really important thing. I think you need to know when actually, no, I can't. I can't do that to them. How do you know? Oh, look, you know, in the case of those two men, I mean, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to say, but I, let's just say it, would, it affected the next generation of right. people yeah. in, a, in, a, in the most final way possible. I think you all know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So each of them had suffered, you know, this thing, generational trauma mm, mm. and I just thought that there was no way I could 
I could leave that in um, mm. because I wanted to leave them with. I wanted to leave them with something. Yeah, I, it was interesting when we were emailing about this, Daniel. When you said, um, I really fought really hard for this to be in here because, you know, I really think that what happened in Kinchula and child sexual abuse is one thing, but this is the history of racism. Yes, it's the history of the country. It's mm. Colonialism, it's everything bad, you know? It's a real shit show. And these these men are kind of at the real at the sticky spear point of all that horror. This yes. is what happens. It's an you know, racism is not a phenomenon, it's not a historical or social thing. For a lot of the people I talk to, their experience of racism is individual and it's an interpersonal thing. It's something that someone did to me when I walk down the street. Or, yeah, it's not, a, it's not abstract. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's you need to make experience. that point. But then how do you uh, contextualise it historically or um, politically? I mean, do you think that's important to do as well, close to the material? Because, I mean, I'm just thinking about, look, V.S. Napol, who's a terrible man, <laughs> but he did say this very interesting thing, which is it's very attractive to people to be a victim uh -huh. instead of having to think out the whole situation about mm. history and your group and what you were doing. If you begin mm. from the point of view of being a victim, you've got it half made. Mm. I think intellectually that's how it ends. <laughs> you know, how do you... How, thing, what do you think of that? Well, the thing is that none of the people I talk to are victims because... They've got the courage to come into a studio and sit down and, and in front of an open mic, tap their veins. So a broken person doesn't do that. A victim doesn't do that. These are people who... And these, these two men who are interviewed on this day for this program, The Punishment Tree, are a perfect example of just not being a victim. The, and the other reason I played it is because I asked the most... Inappropriate question. What was the worst thing that happened to you at Kinchula? What, when, was, when was it like, you know, when did you think, I'm in hell here? I mean, I would never ask that question. That was so painfully direct. But I really felt that they were ready to tell the story and that people needed to be reminded. There, was a, there has been a lapse in consciousness about this issue and uh, a lapse in memory in public memory about Stolen Generations. Um, and they're some of the most powerful interviews I've ever done. And these are inherent, you know, there's, there's just no way these people are victims. These men have just gone on to amazing things. And, you know, the interview f ends so positively. Right. None of them are victims. I don't, right. I don't, I don't So you I've, make I've sure you leave the, the, the end, as you were saying, with a broader purpose. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You don't just leave it there. No, no, no. I mean, I'm not going to skewer people. I mean, Mm. The, the program is called The Punishment Tree. Yes. But, you know, the longer version of that title is Breaking the Chains of the Punishment Tree. Think about the chain. Think about the tree. The tree actually is a really important metaphor for, the, for, for both of these men and for all the boys who went to Kinchula. It's a massive Moreton Bay fig tree. Huge. So now it's, what it's done is it's, it's, the, the, it's grown so big that it's snapped the chain, the chain's all rusted away, and there's one, there's just a, you know, there's the, the one thing that was screwed into the tree, and the tree's growing over it. So it's all about, you know, like, right. you know, this is, the pain is, you recount it in order to remind people that it happened, in order that it doesn't happen, and so that it doesn't happen again. Right. Um, but an interesting thing about that is both of them agreed that, and this is a fact, that children are being removed at a much higher rate now than they ever were in the lifetime of those two men. So they were very careful about, about that, about saying, well, yeah, this happened to us, but it's happening, you know, children are still being removed. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, question, the, the reasons for that are very complex. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's a story of redemption. It's, a, it's about, you know, getting, going to the tree and seeing the links and, you know, seeing them rusted away so and finding... Mm -hmm. Redemption. Mm. So it's not just about the drama and the emotion. You need to you need to think about what else is there. Absolutely. I mean, how, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not interested in drama in and of itself. Okay. All right, Kirsty. Let's um, let's give you a dose. <laughs> Can you set up? Um, tell people about your story, the storm, and um, set up this little grab for us, please. 
Okay, so the story we're going to be t talking about today is the storm. Some of you may have heard it. My former partner and father of my oldest child approached me several years ago um, to tell his story of ch his childhood sexual abuse. And I knew a little of his story. Uh, I didn't know all of it until we started talking about this story. He sent me through his submission to the Royal Commission and I read it and I was filled with so much horror at what had happened to him and so much guilt about being in a relationship with this man, having a child with this man and not having known such a fundamental part of him and, and not understanding not understanding him and some of his behaviours and maybe not being and not being there for him and not asking the right questions. I knew part of the story but not all of it. So over a, a six month period um, I kept in touch with him. I was very nervous, obviously, about telling his story. He's very vulnerable. Um, he's also, we also have a, a child together. He was 20 at the time, I think 20 at the time. Um, and also because there was also, unfortunately, you have to take these things into account in the media, there also had been a lot of stories about child, child sexual abuse at the time. We were right in the thick of the Royal Commission and I had to think about a way of telling this story and telling his story and thinking, how can I make this different to what everyone's done before me? And who wants to sit and listen to an hour of this kind of pain? How, how can you make someone want to listen to this story? And so, the, with you know, a lot of consultation with my EP, Claudia, who's over there somewhere, um, we decided that really the power of this story was the personal relationship that Eric and I had and that that should be part of the story and that we should talk about all those uncomfortable things like the guilt um, and you know, tackle that head on. So this is just an excerpt from the storm. So this is the time. As soon as the sun goes down, I often go into panic mode. Kind of feels like it's related to the blackout of being in the abuse. As the light fades, I can no longer see what's going on around me. And it always feels like there's something in the shadows. About 2am in the morning, I'll get the nightmares come. And from there on, I'm just waiting for the sun to rise. And I keep waiting for something to change. And I'm just hoping for that point in this awful swing I'm going through, where I start rising up again. I just worry so much that you're out here on your own with your head just so completely immersed in this, that that's hurting more than it's helping. Overwhelmingly, the feelings I have when I'm at home have been peace, security. I love all of the noises and the animals and the birds. I love being in touch with the sky and the stars. What's changed in the last few months? One of my abusers was charged. I've been dealing with police, I've been dealing with the Royal Commission, I've been dealing with a lot of extreme things. And the stress of knowing that I can't function well enough to pay the mortgage, it just seems that everywhere I turn, everything is hurting such a lot more. Okay, so it took me a long time, Kirsty, to... I knew what the story was and it took me a long time to force myself to listen to this story. Mm. Um, That's a common response. Yes, I'm sure. So, so why do you think we should? Why do you think people should? What do you think they get out of this, listening to this? I think they gain empathy for people who may be not functioning as well as they could be in society. I had to have a lot of conversations with um, not just Eric's son, who was 20, but with my other two children who were 14 and 10, 11 at the time this went to air. And he was coming over to stay with us and I had to have conversations with them about his story and his history and why he might be a little different and you know why he may um, if you've heard the story, you'll know that he has um, terrible issues with cleaning his teeth. He was abused by a dentist. 
And so, you know, it, that's very obvious. He's got a lot of teeth problems and, you know, his breath smells and he doesn't wash his clothes. He lives in quite a filthy way. It's kind of a measure of self-protection. And so what I, I guess what I hoped is that there are people like this in our world all around us and if we, everyone has a story and getting some understanding of what may be in someone's past is so vital. Not long, I think it was about a week after I, I did this story, um, after it went to air, and I'd been trying really hard to get in contact with him. He wasn't answering his phone, and I just felt so terrible. I just thought, oh, my goodness, I've just sent him into you know a state of terrible despair, and he's angry with me, and what did I put something in I shouldn't have, and you know what's going on? And um, then I got this like, PR thing in the mail. I can't even remember what it was, but it had this postcard, and this postcard said, make visible what without you might perhaps never have been seen. And that is what, I've stuck that right fair and square above my computer and I look at it every single day and whenever I'm thinking and whenever I'm wavering about a story, I come back to that. And we were talking earlier about, you know, why I do these kinds of stories because the story I did before this one was about, um, actually a story about pedophiles and about child sex offenders and what goes through their brains and why why they are attracted to children and how they feel about their attraction to children and how they live with that. And I, I approach that as a journalist because I wanted people to understand how best we could be handling um, child sex abuse cases. If we want to actually fix this problem of child abuse, how are we going to do it and how are we going to do it in the most effective way? So anyhow, so yes, yeah, so I approach these stories because I think that there is some kind of light under there that we need, or we need to shine a light on these issues that we don't otherwise talk about because mm. they're far too taboo. Yes, I know that, but when, when <laughs> but? <laughs> but well, I always hear. I made this piece about mm. my grandmother, yeah, mm. who died as a result of a backyard abortion. Mm. It was a terrible, mm. miserable story, and it had all sorts of effects on my family. And um, I remember playing it uh, when we finished it to Tony Barrell, who's mm. a very well-known um, uh, program maker who's now dead. Uh, he was the EP at the time and he listened to the, the final story and we looked at him for his response to the story that we'd taken so long to produce and been so awful. And he said to me, you must be very happy with yourself. And that really <laughs> took me back. And I hear it a lot now when I listen to stories like that, I hear his voice because he used to describe stories like this and this is not necessarily my opinion but this is some people's opinion as he used to describe stories like this, uh, people, program makers being doctors and nurses wanting to fix up the world, yeah? And he didn't believe that that was our role, that our role was there to entertain and to inspire, to make people think. What do you but say to that talk sort about, of... If we don't talk about this, who does? I mean, we have a privilege of a platform here. So if we're not talking about these issues, who is? And we might not, it might not make us feel very comfortable about ourselves and the world when we sit and listen to these stories, but it sure didn't feel very comfortable to Eric when he was being abused, and it sure doesn't feel very comfortable for Aziz on Manus and for the men that you, that you, or the people that you speak with all the time too. So, you know, we have a duty to hear these stories. We okay. might not like it, but it's, we, have to, we have to do it. <laughs> what do you say to that, Tim? I, I was just about to... Uh, someone drew a line, I don't know who it was, it was a big, big podcast that said, you know, I don't... I don't follow worthy stories, I follow good stories. But worthy is, you know, and I, I hate to think of the stories that I cover as being worthy, but they are. They are worthy. They're actually worth people listening, you know? And, you know, I can say that because I've been doing it for 12 years, banging away, telling people stories, and giving, the, giving people a microphone. Actually, that's what my job is. And I'm not one of these people who... I remember when I was... You know, occasionally pre presenting live. I remember once, many years ago, I was in Melbourne and I was presenting books and arts. And the EP was like, get it, you know, ask a question, ask a question. Like, interrupt, interrupt. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
it's going, it's going fine. Just, I'm going to ignore you. But, but, but and that's we, the approach you okay, need to take. Okay, but are we at the point... I mean, we're at a podcasting conference, you know. Journalism is escaping the mainstream media as we speak. Yeah? It's running <laughs> off into this community, yeah? Do, are we at a point where, where we should be just giving the microphone to those communities to tell their own stories instead of pretending that we're a gatekeeper? Yeah, isn't, isn't that happening? Isn't yeah, it, isn't yeah. it happening? I mean, yeah, I, I'm not stopping anyone from doing doing that. In fact, I, I would I would my dream is to actually give recording equipment to people or per persons in every Aboriginal community in Australia, and saying and going there and showing them how to use it. You know, well, that's it. I was going to say. I was talking to Kirsty beforehand, saying that there's a part at the start um, of the storm where um, Eric speaks directly to you. And I was, uh, and I, for me, that just did so much about locating the story and and whose it was and and how it was made. And it was very brief and very um, gentle. And, and what so, I, what yeah. I had explained to Michael was that I actually had sent a recorder over mm. to Eric to keep an audio diary. And what I like about doing that is that people can, you know, you're not just sit there at appointment time to sit and do an interview. Mm. It, whenever something comes into his mind or he's experiencing an emotion, he can actually speak to it at the time into the microphone. But it also, you get such a different tone mm. when you get that. It's completely different to an interview or an interaction. You get, you know, you get an intimacy and an honesty and a, and a rawness mm. that you don't get when you're sitting face to face, I think. So that's how, that, that's how it had started with that. I think, that, I think that's a great um, approach. And one of the, one of the most important um, pieces of audio I've heard in the last uh, 12 months is one of a man who's experiencing um, dissociative disorder. And uh, he's not quite sure, you're never quite sure of the gender of this person. And uh, it's a beautiful program. And again, the, the approach was, here, I'm going to give you this recorder and, you know, you come back to me. We'll come back together every, you know, every week or so. But actually being posted a recorder to, to, to talk about this dissociation and to talk about who's inhabiting this body at what point in time and what are the characteristics of that person, it was amazing. I mean, I think that's a really good approach. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. We've got 10 minutes left for questions. <laughs> thank you very much. And I'd like you to thank our guests before we go to questions. I have a question about working with people who have experiences, lived experiences of trauma and in having those experiences or sharing those stories then um, sort of having secondhand trauma from experiencing that and creating that in intimate ways that ways that you produce your shows and balancing self-care with not prioritizing your own mm. trauma over the person who you're actually like trying to document and how if you face this how you do this can i speak to that yes. um <sighs> When I did the recording for The Storm, I went out to Eric's property, which was in a very remote part of New South Wales, and we had no electricity, we had no phone signal. I was with him for five days, and um, it was the hardest five days of my life. I was so... Even though I had spent six months making sure that he wanted to tell this story and that he was aware of what, you know, how much he was making himself vulnerable, I still had concerns, and so, I, and I was also constantly monitoring him for signs of trauma. But he, and he did at one point have a really serious breakdown where I panicked, and I'd had no phone signal. I was there on my own, and I was really concerned he was going to hurt himself. And there's a piece in the program actually where he's. I, I say to him, he wouldn't. I didn't know how to comfort him. He didn't want me to touch him. I didn't know what to do. Anyway, he went off and I said, you, do, you need to stay where I can see you. And so he did. Um, and, I just stood, and I just watched him for half an hour. And then he eventually came back and then I just fed him. <laughs> I just gave him all the food I could give him. Um, anyway, so there were a few moments like that. That was the most severe. And then um, what I then did was I then took him back out into the bush and we started talking about, um, it was actually preceded this um, clip that you heard on, I took him out to something I know that gave him great joy, which was listening to the frogs in the pond at night. 
And so um, I kept trying to ground him back in nature every time he felt like he was slipping. Um, and I was there and I made him sleep in the same room as me also that night. Um, and as for self-care, when I got home from recording, when I got off the plane after that five days, I had a complete breakdown. And I knew I would be okay. I knew I would be okay. And I, I, I didn't really need to talk to anyone, but I really needed to process it. And I needed to process how on earth I then came back and told our son how bad, what a state his father was in, because I hadn't seen him for four years and I was horrified. So, yeah, there was, it took a lot of time. Um, he is... And then also, of course, then I'm feeling guilty that I'm feeling so terrible because he's the one in, in pain. So then, of course, and then managing and, and making sure he's getting the care that he needs post-interview as well, which I was making sure he had an appointment booked with his counsellor um, like the next day, and he was with his mum as well. So, yeah, it's, it's a... I was really interested, Michael sent through um, the guidelines for trauma that he had got from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, and that was really... Uh, that, yeah, was we, it from them? We yeah. worked with a couple of trauma counsellors um, from Foundation House, actually, um, and we prepared it together. Mm. Yeah. It was really... really. Uh, well, I had a look at that. You just yeah. did a, several of the things that are recommended, actually. Yeah. Well, I actually just read it through this morning and I was thinking, mm. oh, I didn't think goodness, I did do that. I yeah. did do that. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that was very, was very useful guidelines for how to approach people so that, or how to deal with people so they don't, they're not too re-traumatised. I have a question for Daniel. Um, you described yourself, you said, you know, I'm not the black fella oracle, I don't know everything, and each community has its own sensitivities and protocol and, you know, um, particular things. And as you pointed out, there's sometimes uh, pressure or a bit of a bottleneck put on Aboriginal journalists that their colleagues will go to them and say, is this okay? Mm -hmm. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about what you do directly to um, whether it's to check protocol or fact check within the communities you're working with that maybe non-Indigenous journalists could do rather than always relying on very busy journalist colleagues to do for them. I mean, there's this... There's a phrase that's kind of taking hold of the moment in in relation to this, and it's this term slow journalism, which I think is I hate that term. <laughs> but if you think about approaching and doing, you know, a lot of research, I mean, this is not stuff that you can do in a week or you need longer. I'm very I'm in a very privileged position now because people actually get ferried to me. Yeah, so you, there might be a situation where someone goes, oh, have you ever met blah, blah, blah? And I'll go, no. And they're like, oh, I've got a really good story and it'll be really good for a way. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I've got, I'm, I'm busy, I'm working on other things as well. But sometimes those people who come through, who get shepherded into, the, into RN and I get shepherded into, the, shepherded into the studio, are some of the best stories. And that wasn't expecting. Going out to a community, doesn't, you don't always get, like as you heard on that audio, you don't always get what you want. You don't always get the right story, whatever that is. You don't always do the right thing by that community. Um, look, uh, it's a difficult question. You have to trust your instincts and you have to be fully briefed. I think the, the, the best thing you can do is know the history of that community. Mm. Say you're going to Rec Bay. Well, I'll find every book you can find about Rec Bay um, and yeah. then start the process of talking to people. Yeah. I think people don't do enough history, yeah. just generally. Yes. Um, there's not enough history being done. So if you can do the history and then approach it, you know, however, you, you've got that background. You've, you've, you, you know kind of what the story of the community is. And that's the, that's the, that's the juice, I think. In, in terms of talking to Aboriginal people from a specific place. We have time for one more. Um, I, this question came from when Kirsty was talking, but I was just wondering, the reception of the piece once it was broadcast, because I was waiting, wondering whether that had any impact on those stories of the people that you're telling. Once the community hears it, um, is that therapeutic in a way? Do they feel... Is there a sense of healing that comes from the, the identification of other people who've gone through that as well? And can you speak to that? Uh, not as much healing for him as I would have thought. 
we had a lot of offers um, of people who wanted to help, and so we set up a crowdfunding campaign. Um, it's, a very long, it's a very long story, but we raised $22,000, which helped him significantly in the situation he was in. He, that, but then that raised all sorts of issues for him of worthiness, and he felt that he wasn't worthy and had huge amounts of guilt from accepting money. And so that raised... I mean, it, was, it took a huge amount of pressure off him, but it didn't come without its own issues. So, but he was... There were... I think, it was, I think it may have been like the most commented on story that we had done for 360, one of them, I think. Mm. Yeah? And it was... Every comment was just so, so loving and so generous to him, and he did read everyone and all the emails, and it, that really did help. So he did feel... Even though it was painful for him to tell his story, he did feel that he had made a difference. Okay, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you very much again. That was Eurydice Aroni, Daniel Browning, Kirsty Milville, and Michael Green talking at the Audiocraft conference. To listen to the works mentioned, check out Michael Green's The Messenger, Daniel Browning's The Punishment Tree featured on RN's Away program, and Kirsty Melville's The Storm by ABC RN. This session was recorded on the day by RN, and the podcast is produced by Beck Fari. Music by James Milsom. To listen to our other episodes, subscribe to our podcast and like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and sign up to our newsletter at audiocraft.com.au.